Hey, before I speak this morning, I'm going to ask Megan Forbes if she would come and join me. Would everybody say good morning to Megan as she comes? And you're just going to leap right up here because you can. That's right. All the short people in the room are very upset right now. So, <clears throat> so Megan's up here. Uh, many of you know Megan. She is our youth pastor and has been our youth pastor for the last couple of years. And most of you, if you don't have uh, uh, young people, you know Megan is the one who speaks periodically on Sunday morning and does an amazing job. But um, Megan recently graduated from Azusa Pacific with her Master of Divinity, which is pretty cool. But as Megan has been walking out this journey of like a crazy life of getting her degree and, and serving with youth, and uh, we've had a lot of dialogues, um, probably going back, I don't know, months and months and months, about what God is stirring inside of her. And um, because of that, what God has been developing, and this is one of the things that, that, that happens when, when you're going to lean in and follow Jesus— he, not always, but many times, he doesn't let you be content where you are. And it's not because you don't like where you are, it's because he's starting to pull your heart towards something else. And Megan's kind of been walking through that and what God's stirring in her about where she feels like God's calling her in her future. And so because of that, she's going to explain a little bit about what that looks like. She's in transition. So she, so she is literally, about two months from now, she'll be making a full transition from our church to go and do what she feels like God is calling her to do. Um, you'll get to hear more details uh, over the next couple months about how we can partner with what, what we feel like God's calling Megan to do. But I wanted to give her a couple minutes to share her heart, what God's been doing in her, and kind of the trajectory of where she's heading. So, Megan, go for it. Yeah, good morning. Um, mornings like this are a mixed bag because they're so good and there's still just like an ache um, in, in my heart um, because I, I love it here. And I love being a part of this family, and a part of the reason why I'm standing here today is because I'm a part of this family, and I have been on the same journey as you all have been on the last couple of years in pressing into Jesus and asking God, who, who have you made me to be, and what are the giftings that you've put inside of me, and what are the passions that you've put inside of me, and and how can I crack open my life that those things could spill out and hopefully show your heart to people who don't know you? Um, as, as you guys have been processing that, so have I. Um, and what I have come to realize is that my heart is just growing and exploding for uh, artists and for entrepreneurs and for business leaders in Los Angeles. And over the last few years, um, God has really opened some doors for me to just make friends and build a relationship to, to a group of people who, who oftentimes don't want anything to do with God, don't want anything to do with Christianity and and in the last few years, just simply through loving them and getting to know them and, and extending friendship to a group of people who only know relational networks. They only know relationships that help them get somewhere. They only know using people or being used. Um, and just getting to simply not need anything from them, just to get to know them and get to love them God has moved, and I've gotten to see people who come from the zero faith background come to know Jesus. Um, and there's 
there's fruit there, and it's making, it's just making my heart come alive, um, and I just feel that tug that this is, this is a lane that, where my passions and God's passions seem to be colliding, and he's opening doors, and so what that looks like for me is that um, I'm going to move into the city, and um, have a house, open open up a house with a couple of friends, and we want to host some community dinners, and just have a safe space for people to come and just be loved and be known, and and see what God would do. It looks like me uh, learning how to use my skills in a different context, and getting a job, hopefully with a little startup company or something, a place where I can really partner with some of the dreams that people have downtown, and see how I can serve and support them and get to know them and build a relationship um, and really take some creative risks of my own too um, and so that's kind of where where I'm headed um, and I I can honestly say that I, I wouldn't be able I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for for being a part of this family and for so many of you guys in this room investing in me and loving me and believing in me um, and encouraging me to do what we talk about doing every week. And is it, what does it look like to seek Jesus? And what does it look like to say yes to the dreams and the risks that he's put inside of us? Um, and so that's what I'm trying to do. I'm excited about it. Mm -hmm. So thank you for loving me. Thanks for being my family. Um, I feel very much like um, I'm going out being being sent as a part of who we are. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a really powerful thing that I'm really grateful for. So, Thank you, Megan. Yeah, you can applause for sure. Um, two, two things I wanted to mention. Um, those of you who have young people, automatically I know where your mind's already going. Okay, Megan's transitioning. What does that mean for you? One of the things, if you have young people, you will know is that Megan has done a wonderful job over the last couple years of setting a healthy culture for our youth. We've seen a lot of investment in kids and seeing their lives impacted. And so there, there's a healthy context for our youth now, which is, which is wonderful. And we want that to continue. And so uh, because of that, we're like, wh what's the best transition? Well, the logical and the best transition actually is to do it in-house, is not to bring somebody to have to learn the culture and kind of starting over again. So Lauren Thornycroft, who is our children's director, is going to move into a dual role. And by the way, so you all know this, everyone first service, well, are you going to give her a raise? Yeah, she's going to get a raise, okay? <laughs> we will take care of people who work at the church, okay? So she actually can afford to live in Simi Valley now, which is great. But, but I wanted you to be aware of that because that will be, the baton will be ha passed from Megan to Lauren as, as this process. And once and for all, our church will know the difference between Megan and Lauren, and they're not the same people, Okay. So, by the way, still to this day, people get them mixed up, which, Lauren, just stand up for, would you just for a moment? This is the difference between Lauren and Megan, okay? I guess it doesn't help that we are wearing yeah, that's right. the same so. thing, <laughs> per <And> you'll, usual. <laughs> you'll hear a, a bit more about the transition with Lauren. So, But then the last thing I want to do before we pray for, for Megan is this, is that we are Antioch Church, and that's not just a name that we just came up with. It's, it's based on, if you've been around you, it's based on a church called Antioch that was formed in Antioch 2,000 years ago. And part of the DNA of that church that was so successful was that it was a sending church. 
And we get excited, like sending people to go reach the world and people coming to Christ. But there's also the backside of sending, which is people leave, people go. Megan's not running from here. She's not being pushed from here. She's being sent from here. And that's important because that means that we don't hang on to people. If God has called someone to go and to do what he's called them to do, then we send them, we pray for them, we support them. Why? Because we believe God's mission is bigger than Simi Valley and bigger than our church. And God has a heart for people everywhere. And so, so we're excited. I'm excited, of course, personally sad, and I'm glad that you're not moving like to New York because L.A. is just, you know, just over the hill. But, but it's important for us to see that, that we're ascending church. And especially when we end up with a lot of, when we do right now, we have quality young leaders in our church. And God may have them here for a while. We're not letting Lauren go anywhere. She's signing a contract. I'm kidding. <laughs> but, but that means that God may say, hey, it's time for you to go here because I've given you a heart and a passion. Now I've shaped you for this. The last thing we want to do is keep somebody where God doesn't want them to be because God has something else for them. So I'm excited but sad at the same time. So would you extend your hand as we pray for Megan? This will be the first of many times we pray for Megan. <laughs> Lord, I thank you for Megan's journey. I thank you, Lord, that, that over the last couple of years we've been able to walk side by side, Lord, as she's invested her life in our young people and so many others. Uh, but, Lord, I know that, that you, in, in Megan's her experience, even her understanding of how she came to know you, her education, the way that you've wired her, Lord, you have positioned her and you have shaped her for, for what she's walking into. And Lord, not only have you, you designed her that way, but you've given her a heart for people who, who don't know you. And Lord, who people, people who, obviously all those who don't know you desperately need you, but Lord, in, in the industry that they find themselves in, in LA, Lord, that, that sense of, Lord, what Megan said, being used and being looked at as a pawn or a means to an end, but, Lord, that, that they have value. They have value from you. And I pray, Lord, as Megan goes, that, that you would, Lord, not only would you guide her in all the logistics of the job and specific location where she lands, but, Lord, as well, that you would, as you always do, when she steps out in faith, when she demonstrates this courage that she's going to have to step out into, that, Lord, that you would fill her once again by the power of your Holy Spirit to equip her beyond her education, her experience, even her skills, so that, Lord, when she's in those moments, Lord, where she's beyond herself, Lord, that your spirit would work through her to reach the hearts of people. Lord, we thank you for Megan. We ask your blessing and your covering over her life. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, love you. So with that, would you go ahead and grab your Bibles if you have access to one or whatever, how you access the scriptures. And we are going to be in the Old Testament. So that's more towards the beginning of the Bible. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 14. We're going to look at a story there that covers about the first 13 or first 23 verses or so. And in line of what we just talked through with Megan and her, uh, the Lord stirring her heart to go and now really take a leap of faith and demonstrate courage into going to something that she's called to, but is a sense of a little bit being unknown. I want to talk a little bit about that this morning, about what it looks like when we begin to live a courageous life. And the reason this is important is because the majority of us, when we play out our lives in our mind, we want to be like the hero of the story. We want to be the one that demonstrates courage. We want it's like that, that Braveheart scene I played a few weeks ago where, you know, Mel Gibson gives the impassioned speech to the Scots and they, you know, they take on England. And you're like, you want to be on the horse riding and rallying the troops. You want to be the hero of your own story. But, but the reality for many of us is that although we want to be in that position, we never get there because we end up being paralyzed by fear and it controls us. And, and the greatest issue that many of us deal with is, is not 
the sins of, we'll put it this way, the sins of commission, which are the things that we do are wrong, but it's actually the sin of omission, which is the sin of the things that we never do. It's the things that God calls us to do and wants us to do, but we never get to them. We never actually do them. We, we sit back and we wait because we're afraid. In fact, you remember in, in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus gives this great story and this great illustration about a, a, a master who went away on a trip and he gave money to three of his servants and he asked them to do something with it and the two of them put it on deposit and they, they gained money, they gained interest, they risked it to make more money and so he applauded their efforts and then there was the third one who was afraid that he would lose what he had, so he buried it in the ground and he returned back to the master what he originally had. Do you remember the story? The one who did nothing is the one that the master called wicked. It wasn't the person who risked, it was the person who did nothing. In fact, you know, the biblical definition for sin is really clear. It's actually James 4, 17, which says this, he who knows the good they should do and doesn't do it, sins. Most of us, when we look back on our life, I can guarantee you the majority of our regrets will not be based on the bad behavior that we had and the wrong things that we did. It will be based on what we didn't do, what we left undone, what we, what we could have done in a moment, but we pulled back. Why? Because we were afraid and we became passive and we did absolutely nothing. Anybody remember once or twice in your life where you regret a moment? I have so many things I could recall. I remember in my life when I was in high school, I was frustrated with living with regret because I was living with so much fear about everything that I would, there were moments I would walk away from like, oh, I should have just done that. Why didn't I do that? Because I was afraid. One of those moments is actually, I dated a girl for like three weeks in high school, one, one, one period of time, and, and we were dating and, and, and we hadn't kissed yet, but I really wanted to kiss her. I'm just going to be really honest with you. So I'm like, okay, we're going to go on a date, and when I say goodnight to her, I'm just going to give her a kiss Finally, you know, and I'm like, so anybody ever experienced that? You're like, guys, you're like, it's going to be the moment. Palms are sweating and you're freaking out. Anybody relate or am I just weird? Okay. It's just that moment. Right. And so we went and saw a movie. I dropped her off at her house. We we're talking and I'm standing kind of like at her front porch saying goodbye to her. And it's like, I could feel the moment was right there, you know? And I'm, I'm like, in my mind, I'm leaning in, but my body's not leaning anywhere. I'm just standing there. I'm staring at her. It's like that awkward moment. And so I'm like, well, and I lean in and I give her a hug. And then I turn around and get my car. And I get halfway down the street, and I'm screaming at myself. I'm like, why didn't you do it? You're such a big chicken. I'm having this out loud conversation with myself in the car. And halfway down her street, I pull a U-turn. I'm like, forget it. I am not living with regret anymore. So I turn around, I drive back to her house. I hop out of my car. I go to the no door. I knock on it. She answers. And I said, listen, would you mind if I kissed you? And that was totally awkward. It was totally awkward. She's like, uh, I guess so, which you could tell was like, no, not really, because you're freaking me out. <laughs> but I leaned in, and I gave her a kiss, and that was pretty much the last date that we ever went on. But <laughs> I'll tell you what. I walked away, and I felt good. I'm like, you know what? I don't have any regrets. Are we going out anymore? No, but I kissed her, okay? At least I kissed her. I think all of us have those moments where because our inability to overcome our fear, we're paralyzed. And, and much bigger moments than debating whether you're going to kiss somebody or not is the moments that God brings to our life and says, this is the moment you're supposed to step into. But because we're afraid, we miss it. And we miss what God wants to do. We miss what God is doing in us that leads up to that moment. And so I have us in 1 Samuel 14 because this is the story that we find ourselves reading into in this passage. And I'll give you some context. This is a, a story about Jonathan and Saul. 
Saul being the king of Israel, the leader, the one that's supposed to be in charge, and then his son Jonathan, who in this story we're going to read, actually becomes the one who leads, while Saul does nothing. So Israel's engaging, again, their arch rivals, their arch enemies, the Philistines. And they're faced with this dilemma because they've been dominated by the Philistines for quite some time. And because of that, they find themselves in really literally disarmed. They don't have the weapons they should. They're facing a battle once again. And Saul, you'll see in the story, is making his decision based on fear while Jonathan is leaning into something that God may be doing in the moment. But the only way he's going to find that out is if he steps forward in courage. So with this context, let, let, we'll walk through this passage. So I'm going to kind of take some verses a little bit at a time as we go through the story. So look at verses 1 and 2. The first truth or the first thing that's true about a life, a courageous life, is this. It's about something instead of nothing. Now let me explain what I mean. But look at the first two verses in uh, 1 Samuel 14, verses 1 and 2. It says, One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave of Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. So just catching those two verses, what's happening? Saul's hanging out with his men in kind of a cave or some would say under a pomegranate tree. While Jonathan's having this concept and this debate with himself and then his armor bearer, maybe we should like pick a fight. Maybe we should go start something. Maybe, maybe we should lean into this a little bit. Two completely different reactions to the same situation. Jonathan was contemplating doing something while Saul was really solid and secure and doing absolutely nothing. And sometimes I think you and I find ourselves exactly in that position. We do nothing. We would rather make sure that everything is safe and controlled instead of taking some kind of risk to step out. Again, the greatest sins of our life, I'm convinced, although there are sin, there are sin that we commit is going to be the, the things that we never did that God called us to do and God wants us to do. It means doing something. And I'm convinced I've seen this in my life. God would, I'm, I'm pretty sure, God would rather have us try and fail than not to try at all. Like, oh, I don't want to fail. No, the greatest failure is never trying, is never risking. And there's so much of what God wants to do in us that requires us to be in motion. See, what we have a tendency to do is we want God to move first. We want God to demonstrate that what I'm about to do, he's going to be in. And so we wait and we wait and we wait and we wait on God to show us the road, to show us safety. So then we'll jump in. What is God doing? He's waiting and waiting and waiting on us to respond. I've said this to so many people who've come in for counseling and they, they're asking me this question about direction for their life. And I know from my experience, I tell them over and over and over again, you cannot steer a parked car. You can turn the wheel, but you can't change directions. Why? Because direction requires momentum. And if you have no momentum, you cannot change direction. You are like me when you were a kid. I used to drive, crawl in the front seat of my parents' car and pretend like I was driving and I would turn the wheel and had a great time, but I never left the driveway because the wheel turned, but I never made any difference. Why? Because there was no momentum. And I'm convinced the way that God works is that when you're in motion, God will begin to direct and speak and you will see. This is a totally biblical principle. It's the way God's worked throughout the Bible, especially you get to the New Testament. Acts chapter 16, probably, I think, one of my favorite chapters in the book of Acts. 
amazing thing unfolds. So Paul goes this, through this amazing transformation. He gives his life to Jesus, and now instead of persecuting the church, he's now presenting the gospel to people. So his heart is in the right place. He's going the right direction. And so you think all he has to do is just pick where he's going, and then he'll be there. But what Paul understood is that God was going to lead him as he was in motion. So if you read through Acts 16, it's interesting. It starts off, Paul has this great intention. So he tries to go into Asia, where people don't know Jesus. And what happens is God says, no, you're not going to Asia. Paul's like, okay, strike one. Let's try this. Let's try to go into Bithynia. And so Paul tries another location, and he pushes in, and God says, no. So then Paul steps back, and that night as he goes to sleep, he has this vision. And God gives him a vision from a person from a, a region called Macedonia and says, you're supposed to go there. So as the story unfolds in Acts 16, Paul goes to Philippi. Anybody heard of the, the book of Philippians? So Paul goes to Philippi, and here's what's ha what happens. He comes across a group of women down by a river who are praying. That is the start of the church at Philippi, which is probably one of the best churches in the New Testament. Starts because Paul goes there. And then after that, Paul and Silas are walking around preaching the gospel, and there's a slave girl who's demon-possessed who's following them around and harassing them because they know she knows who they are. And finally, out of frustration, Paul turns around and silences the evil spirit and casts her out. Now, that was bad news. Why? Because she was owned by people who knew she was demon-possessed, and they were using that to fortune-tell. So they realized they just lost their income. So this gets the stir up in the city, and Paul and Silas are arrested, and then they end up in prison, and they end up beaten. And literally, when they meant beaten, it wasn't just they were hit. They literally, their, their backs were just, like, shredded. They were whipped. And then they're thrown in the inner cell in these stocks that were made to make you the most uncomfortable position you could be in. Your legs were spread. Your body was stretched out. Your back is bleeding. And if you read through Acts 16, what do you find? At about midnight, Paul and Silas were singing praises to God. That's crazy. But what's more crazy is God sends an earthquake, shakes the entire prison, all the cells fly open. And the jailer, who and we would say the, the warden over that, is afraid that all of his prisoners are going to escape. So he's about to take his life. And Paul says, whoa, whoa, we're all here. No one's left. And then as the story goes on, he shares the gospel with that man. And then him and his entire family come to know Jesus. That's a good day. But that didn't happen in Asia. That didn't happen in Bithynia. Where did it happen? It happened in Macedonia and Philippi. And you and I better be grateful that it happened. Why? Because then we have the book of Philippians. We have this experience. Why is that so significant? Because God wanted Paul to go to Philippi. And when Paul was in motion, God said, I'm going to turn your wheel slightly. Because there's a slave girl that needs to be freed. There's a church that needs to be planted. And there's a family that needs to come to know me. And you're going to be the one to do it. If you and I can capture that, that if we are leaning in and we are risking that maybe we're going the wrong direction, guess what? If your heart is right, God can change your direction. But he can't change your direction if you're not doing anything. If you're just sitting and you're doing nothing, then there's no change in your life. It's just the same as always. Then the second thing, look at verse 6. A courageous life is about risk instead of safety. So Jonathan's carrying on this conversation with his armor bearer, and I love this verse. It says, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of those uncirc or these uncircumcised. It may be that God will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. That's the, the ESV translation, but the NIV it actually uses the word perhaps. Per, what, what Jonathan is saying, hey, let's go over there and pick a fight. Perhaps, just maybe, God may be working on our behalf. Does that sound very confident? How many of us will go on a perhaps? How many of us will act on a maybe? Not many of us. 
what? I want to guarantee. What if, what if Jonathan said, let's go over there and take on the Philistines. God is guaranteeing a victory. That's easy. But what was Jonathan saying? I won't know if God is working on our behalf until we're in the middle of the battle. That's the only way we're going to find this out. So he says, perhaps, which is not the word that we live by. But he believed that God was going to do something, so he was taking a risk instead of remaining safe. So what are we doing with our lives? What was Saul doing in this story? All while this, this, this dialogue between Jonathan and his armor bearer is going on, what's Saul doing? He's hanging out in the cave with 600 guys doing absolutely nothing. And Jonathan's the one that's leaning in. And because of that, Jonathan's the one that's risking everything while Saul's risking nothing. Risk. Something else that we like to talk about, but we don't like to do. I don't want to risk. I don't want to risk my finances. I don't want to risk my family. I don't risk my house, my car, my job, my life, anything. I don't want to risk anything. Why? Because we think coming to Jesus means that all my problems disappear, and the result is I live a comfortable life till, till life till Jesus comes back, right? That's the Christian faith. No, that's the American invention of the Christian faith. If you read through the Gospels and you read through the book of Acts, what you will discover is every person who followed Jesus had to be willing to risk everything. What? For the sake of Jesus and the sake of the world. That's what God calls us to do, to risk everything. I was watching a documentary about a week and a half ago. It just blew me away. Most of us are aware of what's going on in Syria. Syria is one of the most brutal civil wars that this world has seen. It's horrific. You have two groups there's multiple groups, but two primarily that are causing most of the problem. The Syrian government and ISIS battling over Syria and caught in the middle are all the civilians. So what the government has done to kind of exact their control is every neighborhood in Syria that is not controlled by them, they will bomb. Even if there's no military and no known ISIS fighters in that area, they will bomb. Why? Because it's not controlled by them. That's their way of controlling. Well, this has been going on for years. And a number of years ago, something began to happen in Syria. A group of people saw their friends and their family dying every single day. And no one coming to their aid to help. So they started to do it themselves. There's a group of people, and their official name is the Syrian Civil Defense, but their really unofficial name is the White Helmets. And this is a group of volunteers that after every single bombing that happens in Syria, they rush in to start clearing the rubble to save people's lives. And they risk their life every day to do this. I'm going to play just about a two-minute clip. There's a Netflix documentary about the White Helmets. I wanted just to capture what this group of people are willing to do. They're willing to risk everything just to save one life as a way of us seeing a different lens for our own lives, what God may be calling us to do. Let's take a look at this together. The latest missile attacks on hospitals and schools in rebel-held areas has left up to 50 civilians dead. Thank you. 
الاذاعه مدني صعب القبه على البيضاء اللي اول الناس بيكونوا موجودين حاله القصر سوريا كل العالم عم تتابع اخباره وما حدا لقوا له حل شعارنا اولا واخيرا نحكي دفاع مدني فمن احياها فكانما احيا الناس جميعا That little baby was 10 days old that they saved out of rubble so they've estimated about 150 of the white helmets have lost their lives over the last few years but here's the astounding number the last count on their website because they have a website 95,024 people have been saved in the last number of years in Syria because the White Helmets, because they're willing to risk, because they're willing to lay down their own safety for the, safe, for the, for the life of somebody else. It's on a much different kind of scale, if you would think about what has God called you to risk for the sake of other people. Jonathan was willing to risk, and God used him to do something profound for Israel. So the third thing going on as far as a courageous life. And you don't have to turn there, but kind of going back to some context in chapter 13, verse 22, this is what it says. The courageous life is God's, it's, it's relying on God's ability instead of our own. This is what Jonathan did. So listen to what it says in verse 22 of chapter 13. So on the day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or a spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. Did you hear that? They're taking on the Philistines with no swords or spears. Not a very good military strategy. Why is that true? Because they've been dominated by the Philistines for a while, and the Philistines had actually made sure there were no blacksmiths in Israel. So they couldn't make swords. or, or they, they, What they ended up doing is taking all of their farming tools and sharpen them up, and that's all that they had. But the only swords in all of Israel, one was with Saul and one was with Jonathan. And Jonathan and his armor bearer, the two of them, were going to set out to take on the Philistine army. That's insane. Why would Jonathan do that? Because I am convinced that Jonathan believed it didn't matter whether he had a sword or not, God was going to work. Saul has a sword, and what is he doing on it? He's sitting on it. He's doing nothing with it. Jonathan is getting his weapon into the battle. Why? Because he realizes God's ability is greater than his. And I think for some of us, this may be the biggest challenge for us to face, is that we only see our lives through the lens of what we can accomplish. We don't see what God can do. In fact, I'm convinced if the dream and vision that you feel that God has given you for your life does not require the power of God, then I'm convinced it's not inspired by God. It can't be. It can't be. Because God will always cause you to have to rely on him when you follow him. Now, hear me. I don't mean to step on any toes, okay? I, I'm not trying to offend anybody. But I, I've seen this, this so many times. We use a phrase to try to bring comfort to people that is really, it's taken from a verse that we take out of context and apply it to the wrong situation. 
So this is the phrase. So many times we will say to people, like when they're going through a hard time, we'll say, listen, God will never give you more than you can handle. Now, that's not a bad phrase, but you know where that comes from? That comes from 1 Corinthians 10, 13. You know what that's talking about? It's about temptation. God will never, and he will never tempt you or allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, that he will help you and actually says he'll give you a way of escape so that you won't be overwhelmed by temptation. But you know what I've learned in my life? If you follow Jesus, he will always lead you in over your head. He will always give you more than you can handle because otherwise you wouldn't need him. And if what you have inside of you, if it's just maintaining your life, or if you have something that, that you feel like God has put in you, but you think you can achieve it, then God hasn't inspired that in you. If you feel and you're confident you can't achieve it, guess what? That may be God. Because he's leading you to a place where you're going to have to get on your knees. You're going to have to rely on him. You're going to have to pray all the time. Your prayer life will change. The way you understand your faith will change. Why? Because it's bigger than you. Do you think that two guys with one sword taking on all the Philistine army is bigger than Jonathan and his armor bearer? It's much bigger. That's why he's thinking, maybe God's in this. Maybe God's going to do something. Then there's a fourth reality of a courageous life, and that is it's about going first instead of last. We don't like to go first. Listen to what it says in verse 14. It says, at the first or that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within as, as what were a half a furlough's length in an acre of land, about an acre of land. So Jonathan finally convinces, and I don't think it took much because his armor bearer was like, hey, I'm all in, Jonathan, let's go. So they climb up, literally, they climb up to this place, this landing area, and then they take on in the first acre, they take out 20 men. The first few words of that verse, at that first strike. What's Saul doing? Nothing. Who's the first to go? Jonathan. Who's supposed to be the leader here? Saul, who's actually leading? Jonathan. He's going first. Now, if you're like me, I mean, over time I've learned to change this about myself, but we would rather have somebody else go first, wouldn't we? Let's just be honest. When it comes to something dangerous or something risky or something that could be embarrassing, we would rather have somebody else go first. You make a fool of yourself, and I'll learn from your mistake. How many agree? Yeah, I like that. I like that strategy because I don't want to be the first to go and make a fool of myself. I don't want to put everything on line. Let them go, and then I will follow if it's safe. You and I, when you say yes to Jesus, you just gave that away. You and I don't get the right to go second or last. There's only first or last. God has called you to always go first. Why? Because you are the people of God in the world sent to reach people around you, to care for other people around you, to be the ones that risk. And so we are to go first. See, it's like when you go back to, remember, remember in elementary school with the first time you had to do an oral report and nobody wanted to speak in front of the class because everybody's freaked out by it. And then the teacher would say, I'm going to take volunteers. And I know my teachers, this is what they always would do. Their default was, okay, if no one's going to volunteer, then we're going to go alphabetical. What's my last name? Amstutz, okay? So I was either like one, two, or three every single time. So I, I said, forget this. I know where the teacher's going. So when they would, she would ask for volunteers, I'm like, I'll go. And I would go and do it first. You know what I loved about it? As soon as I was done, the other 29 people in my class, now we're all freaking out because they had to go, and I was sitting back for the next day and a half just chilling because I already went. Going first, Jonathan didn't wait for his dad. He took the step forward. And here's the, maybe this is the way you need to see your life differently. When you say yes to Jesus, you become a pioneer, not a settler. But we think, oh, yeah, Christianity is about safety and <clears throat> problems going away and everything just being perfect. No, <clears throat> it's about being the first into the things that God's wanting you to do. What do pioneers do? They go first, 
they take on the arrows, they take on the risk, they take on the danger, and then the settlers come behind and reap the benefits of the pioneers. Do you know if you know Jesus today, there was a pioneer in your life that went before you? If you're a family that comes from generation to generation of people who follow Jesus, guess what? There was a pioneer in your lineage that went first, and probably it cost them the relationships with their family, but they did it because they knew it was right. See, you're, you and I are supposed to be settlers. We're supposed to be pioneers. We're supposed to step out. Why? Because there's a world that is dying around us, and God is saying, I'm with you. Go. Perhaps I will work on your behalf. And we go, I don't know. I'm working with a couple that, uh, some, some church planters right now that are going to be planting a church in the Midwest. And we've been on the phone quite a bit talking about as, as they're processing through where God's calling them to go. And so they were, they were kind of on a scouting trip <clears throat> in the Midwest, and they looked at a number of different cities. And when we were talking with them about the cities they were looking at, there was one city in particular when they drove through that city. They said, you know, they were kind of dialing in on another city that they really liked. But as they said, hey, when we went through that city, we just felt it was really dark. Very just we could feel that as we drove through it just wasn't a place that we would necessarily want to be now I just kept my mouth shut I didn't want to play the Holy Spirit at that point so I let them kind of process through and and so about a week later the the church planters they they heard from the leadership in Foursquare in that particular area and it was interesting they said hey there's a church about 30 miles from this city that was so dark that wants to plant a church they're just looking for church planters so basically they're saying, would you go to that church, build a team, and then go plant into that city, not knowing that these church planters are like, that's the dark city. That's not where we want to go. And so I remember that he, you're telling me this. He's telling me this, and I'm, I'm just being quiet. I'm just being quiet. I'm thinking, hmm, interesting, interesting. And before I even said anything, because I honestly didn't want to play the Holy Spirit, he said, listen, he goes, I was driving, and when I got the call from the leadership, and they said this is what we were doing, he goes, this is what I thought to myself, because I really don't want to go to that city. But then God said to me, if you don't go into the darkness, who will? And I said, okay, now I got to share it. I said, because the, a week ago when we talked and you said, when you drove through that city, it was dark. You know what popped into my, my mind? Isn't dark places where Jesus has called us to go? Isn't that where we're supposed to go? Not to the places where there's light, to the places where there is no light, to the darkness. And so I'm excited because now they're going to go to the dark city. Why? Because guess what they're going to find? God is working on their behalf when they go. But that means you have to be willing to go first and to be the pioneer. And then there's a fifth reality of a courageous life, and that is that it's about seeking instead of hiding. So verses 18 and 19. So as Jonathan and his armor bearer are in the midst of battle, listen to what's happening with Saul. So it says, Saul said, to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here, which was the symbol of, of God's presence for Israel. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. What was Saul doing? Saul was doing the spiritual thing. He was praying. He was seeking the will of God while Jonathan was living out the will of God. Now, prayer is not bad and prayer is not wrong, but I'm telling you, sometimes in the church, you know what prayer becomes? An excuse to cover our fear. We, how many times, if you're honest with yourself, how many times have you said, I'll pray about it? And you know what you're saying is, I don't want to do that, but I'm going to make it sound that I'm doing the spiritual thing. I'm going to pray about it, and in the way I pray, God's going to say no. So we say it, and everybody goes, oh, you prayed about it. If you were here last week, Lance Ford mentioned, there are a lot of things you just don't need to pray about. You just need to do them. 
And this is one of the things, Jonathan didn't need to go seek God on this. He knew that God was going to give him victory. Why? Because Israel was the God, God's people on the planet at the time. They're his representation. So he knew. He said, by many or few, what? God is going to give us victory. He believed that. And if you and I understand that, that sometimes we are hiding behind seeking God. When you already know what the truth is, you already know what God has said, but you want to spiritualize it. And we do that so many times. I, I know I've done it. When we, before we moved up to Oregon, we were, Kim and I were going to scout out Austin, Texas. We felt like we were going to go there. And I got a call from my friend who was pastoring a church in Newburgh, Oregon. And he said, I just want you to know I'm in transition. There are names on the list, and your name is one of them to be considered for this church. So I want you to consider this church. And what did I say to him? Oh, pray about it. And I'm going to be honest with you. In my, in my mind, I'm like, heck No. I don't, I've just been on vacation in Oregon the summer before, and it rained in the summertime. I don't want to move there. But I was thinking through, yeah, I'm going to pray about it. But I wasn't going to pray about it. Why? Because I don't want to go there. I was already dialed into Austin, Texas. Kim and I went to Austin for three days, three most miserable days of our lives. Love Austin, Texas, but God clearly said, your heart's not going to land here. You're not going here. You know how frustrating that is? And it took us three weeks after that trip, but God said, the reason I said no to Austin is because you already said no to Newburgh, and I didn't say no. We ended up in Newburgh, Oregon, and suffered for Jesus in the rain for seven years. And then we saw the light of Southern California, and thank Jesus, we're here. <laughs> but how many times are you presented with an option that you think, I know God wants me to do something, but you're so afraid that you try to spiritualize it? We do it all the time. We miss the opportunities that God has for us. And then the final thing is this. Look at verses 21 to 23. A courageous life is about leading instead of following. Now hear me on this. Already some of you have just said, well, I'm not a leader. Whether you know it or not, you lead every single day of your life. You just know, don't know that it's happening. So listen to what's happening here. Verse 21 to 23. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all of the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed uh, beyond Beth-Avon. So what's going on here? Jonathan and his armor bearer, one sword, go and take on the Philistines. This is what's happening. There had been a group of Hebrews, because of their fear, they had joined the other side. They had moved in with the Philistines, and they were actually fighting against Israel with the Philistines. And so they are so inspired by what's happening with Jonathan and this shift in this battle that now they're turning back to the right side and they're coming back to the Jewish side and now they're fighting for Israel. Then there were a group of guys who were so afraid they literally had, they had gone and hi, hidden in rocks and they hear that the battle's stirring and so they come crawling out of the rocks. And then on top of that, Saul and his 600 men hanging out under the tree hear the tumult going on in the camp and they're like, we're in. So from three different sides, Israel rises up and defeats, his, defeats the Philistines. How in the world does that happen? Because of one guy. One person. It wasn't Saul. It was Jonathan. Jonathan wasn't the leader. Jonathan wasn't the king. Jonathan wasn't in charge. Jonathan led the charge. Jonathan's the one that inspired three different groups of Israelites to do what they should have done in the first place. He wouldn't have said, I'm the leader. He didn't wake up that morning and say, I'm going to lead the charge and we're going to defeat. No, he just said to his armor bearer, hey, let's go pick a fight. That's what he did. You, we got a sword between us. Let's go and let's see what God might do. And what did God do? God actually rallied an entire nation from one guy's risk. One guy's perhaps that God might do something on our behalf. 
Let me close with a story that I've shared before, but I want you to capture it again because I think it points to how you and I could see our lives and what God may be up to. In fact, the worship team, you can come and, and join me. We're going to do one lo- last song together. But So I have, a, I have a friend, a good friend. His name is Dan Bush, and I've told Dan's story before, but I want you to listen to this again. Dan's one of my heroes. Uh, Dan doesn't walk on water. Dan isn't Jesus. But Dan has lived a life that I look at and think, that's, that's all of us. And Dan responded something and to something a number of years ago that reflected much of what I think Jonathan was responding to. He saw that God was at work. So Dan is a middle school vice principal, which means, as a vice principal, you are the enforcer. So he gets all the bad kids. All the kids that have disciplinary problems, all the kids that are truant, they all go to Mr. Bush's office. That was his reputation. So he had to follow up on truant kids. So kids who didn't show up to school, he's making calls, he's trying to contact parents. And so as he was doing that, he kept finding himself in the same apartment complex over and over and over again. Now, Newburgh was not really a very, like, high crime city, but there was, it had its parts. And so this apartment was in the worst part of our town. So Dan kept going in and he kept seeing what people were living, the conditions they were living in, and, and the families were just devastated. Some of them couldn't afford to, to have clothing and food for their kids. There was a lot of addiction. There, it just kept going in. He's like, this is just not right. And I still remember we sat down in this little burger joint in Newburgh, and we're sitting there at lunch, and Dan says something to me, and, and as a pastor, I hear this a lot, but I didn't hear the, the outcome of what Dan was going to say, but I hear the first part, and the first part was this. He said, I go in and I see this all the time. And he said, somebody has to do something. Code word for pastor, you know what that means? You have to do something. That's what it usually means. You need to rally the church. And then Dan didn't say that. And he looked me in the eye and he said, I'm going to do something. I said, Dan, what are you going to do? He goes, well, I lead a a small group right now. There's about 12 of us. And I'm going to tell our small group, we're going to do something. I said, what are you going to do? He goes, we're just going to start a barbecue. He goes, I already contacted the owner of the apartment complex, and I said, once a month, we're just going to go in with my barbecue. I'm going to wheel it in there. We're going to fire up the barbecue. We're going to cook hamburgers and hot dogs and just see if we can draw people out of their apartments and just get to know them. And so they did it the first time. And if I recall right, I think half of the small group didn't show up. Half did. So like six or eight people. And about 30 or 40 people came out of their apartments and like, what are you guys doing? Why are you in our apartment complex? You're weird. You know, just all kind of, but they're like, could I please have a hot dog? And I'll have another, right? Then the second month, the rest of the small group showed up because they're like, wow, you guys had 30 or 40 people show up. Maybe we should do this. And so they jumped on board. And there was about 60 or 70. And then on and on and on until after a year, there's about 150 people every month that would come out for a barbecue. And here's the cool thing. This caught so much momentum that that burger joint that Dan and I were sitting in for lunch, the owner of that heard about it and said, I'm in. He said, I'll bring my mobile grill and I will supply all of the food for people. You guys just go, you show up, you cook, and you care for people, but I'll supply everything. I'm like, are you serious? So for years, every month, this is called, we called it Third Street Adopt, Adopt-A-Block. We built relationship with people. And we saw people come to know Jesus. We saw people get baptized. And then you know what happened? Is we said to ourselves, you know what? This isn't the only difficult neighborhood in our city. There's more. And so I went to our our local kind of like Samaritan Center, which was known as Love, Inc. And I asked the director, where's another apartment complex that needs help? She goes, 9th Street. You got to go to 9th Street. She told us the exact address. And then a couple in our church said, that's us. We're all in. We'll go. 
And so they went and they started an adopt-a-lock. They started a barbecue and that developed. And this, let's tell you, one of the coolest moments for me was this. Third Street so took off with people being connected and loved on. It wasn't just about hot dogs and hamburgers. That, that one, we did it for a couple of years, but one Christmas in particular, Dan, since he was a vice principal, he had access to school buses. So we got two or three school buses and we, we took about 100 to 125 people from that neighborhood to a ranch out on the outskirts of Newburgh. And our church, 100 people in our church volunteered and we hosted a dinner for people from the neighborhood. And it wasn't just for the, our people from our church to serve food. It was actually, we actually positioned families at every table. So all of our church was mingled with all of the people from the neighborhood. And we played music and had games. And I remember standing back as I'm watching Dan, not Pastor John, Dan, stand up in a room of about 250 people and for about 15 minutes shared his journey of who Jesus is and clearly shared the gospel with people who needed to hear it. And I was standing in the corner sobbing. Because I'm watching, this is Dan's moment. This is what Dan was built for. This is what God called Dan to do. And where did it start? It started as a vice principal walking into an apartment complex that broke his heart. And the result was Dan inspired hundreds of people in our church to care for hundreds, if not thousands of people in our city. And guess what? It wasn't the church that started it. It was Dan. And I've said this so many times, there are so many Dan Bushes in our church right now that are unidentified because you are sitting passively, paralyzed by your fear, and God's saying, it's your moment. The people you know at work, the neighbors that you get, you get irritated with, the family member that is difficult for everyone, whoever it is, and God says, listen, this is your moment, here's your opportunity. Walk across the street, reach out to somebody, say to yourself, I'm going to be the one that does it. And perhaps God may be working on your behalf. So would you pray with me, Lord Jesus? You have shown us through Jonathan, but you have shown us through the centuries that when your people step into risk, when your people go first, when your people pioneer we see the dreams and the visions and the capacity that you've put inside us that we never knew was there. But also when you do that, Lord, we inspire, we care for people, but Lord, we inspire people around us because we're stepping into the moment that you've created us for. So Lord Je Jesus, this week, would you give us the courage, would you give us the bravery to step into the moments that are around us every day and find ourselves, Lord, being the first being the one that has courage, is willing to risk, and the result is Jesus. We see you move in us, and we see you move in the lives of other people around us. We ask that you would do that, Jesus, in your name.